Hello, I'm Harry Glorikian, and this is The Harry Glorikian Show, where we explore how technology is changing everything we know about healthcare. My guest, Rohit Nambasan, comes from the worlds of biotech and data science. And during our interview, he made an interesting point. These days, you can use an app like Grubhub to order a pizza for 20 or 25 bucks, and the app will give you a real-time, minute-by-minute accounting of where the pizza is and when it's going to arrive at your door. But Rohit points out that if you're a pharmaceutical company running a clinical trial for a new drug, you can spend anywhere from $3 million to $300 million and still have absolutely no idea when the trial will finish or whether your drug will turn out to be effective. The problem is there's just no infrastructure for analyzing clinical trial data in midstream or spotting trouble before it arrives. As a result, according to Rohit, 20 to 30% of the money drug makers spend on clinical trials goes down the drain because of studies that continue long after they should have been canceled or good data that gets thrown out because of some minor procedural flaw. Rohit is the CEO of a company called Locavant that wants to change all of that. The company is building a data platform that allows drug makers and clinical research organizations to harmonize the results coming in from study sites, compare it to data from other trials, and discover important signals in the data before it's too late. For example, a company might discover that it's not enrolling patients fast enough to complete a trial on schedule, or that the researchers administering the study aren't following the exact protocols laid out in advance. All of those problems can increase the cost of a trial. They can even lead regulators to deny approval for a drug that might have proved effective if it had been properly tested. For an average healthcare consumer, these kinds of headaches might sound abstract and remote, like something only clinical trial managers would ever have to worry about. But the fact is, poor data management slows down the whole drug development process, which means fewer beneficial new drugs make it to market every year. So I think we should all be cheering companies like Locavent who are trying to fix the process. Here's my full interview with Rohit. Rohit, welcome to the show. Thanks, Harry, for having me. You know, you and I sort of talk off and on all the time about the space and what's going on. But, you know, having you on the show, sorry, I have to step back and sort of forget everything I know about the company and start from scratch. So, you know, can you explain to people the sort of look of Ant's business in a way that would make sense to someone say, outside of the pharmaceutical industry? In other words, you know, what are the big problems you're solving for organizations that, yep. say, are running a clinical trial, and how are you solving them? Sure, I can do that. I think it uh, bears noting that we should probably step back a little bit and talk about the industry as a whole and where it's been going, and then I can clarify where Locavent comes in. So I think, um, as many folks know, and for those who don't, I'll fill in the blanks. I know you know this, Eric, but uh, in the last, I'd say, 15, 20 years, we've been moving in pharmaceutical development away from blockbuster indications, things like diabetes type 2, right? Um, developing therapies for that and getting a, each drug developer trying to find a smaller piece of uh, market and larger pie. 
to specialized niche therapeutic indications, right? So the way I could probably be better state it with the diabetes example is it's no longer diabetes type two, it's let's develop the compounds or therapies for diabetes type two patients that are comorbid with, that have also chronic kidney disease and are metformin naive, meaning they haven't taken a particular therapy known as metformin, right? So it's, it's, it's a, a more complex filter criteria, so to speak, right? And so yep. what happens when the industry moves in that, that direction is that when you get into these very niche therapeutic areas, you need to collect particular niche, commensurately niche types of data to validate your hypothesis whether or not this therapy is safe and efficacious for clinical trials, right? And in doing that, you've now increased the complexity of the trial greatly, not only in terms of the different types of data you're collecting, but the amount of different types of data you're collecting. So now each trial becomes a lot more specialized, not just specialized therapeutics, but each trial becomes more specialized, right? right. And so for that reason, we've seen a big challenge as we as we moved in across the, that, that space. And actually, it's been really beneficial for patients because now we're going after, as, a, as an industry, we're going after really niche unmet clinical needs that previously there were no therapies for or being developed for. So it's, it's a really good right. thing from a patient perspective but from the perspective of development, it makes it that much harder. Not only is there a smaller market opportunity, there's less patients to treat, right? But the complexity, the actual cost of the trial and the complexity of the trial has gotten exponentially that much greater. So what where Locavan came out of was we were actually a, shall we say, an internal initiative within Royvan Sciences, which is a company that launches a number of different biotechnology companies and tech companies as well, but better known for biotechnology companies. And we saw a great need to be able to develop therapies for niche indications much faster, much more efficient, much more cost effectively, um, and also meet the complexities of that trial better through novel data and tech. And so what Locavan is essentially is a data platform that allows drug developers, pharma therapy developers to be able to choose which data sources they need, data types they need for a trial. And we can ingest any of those data sources. We can analyze any of those data sources in a, in a holistic manner and expose right. patterns or signals that could be beneficial or detrimental to the study on an ongoing basis. And when I say ongoing basis, I mean, you're not waiting until the end of the study like, and I guess the best, best way I can I align this is just like my kids do sometimes. You're not waiting until the last day before your term paper is due or before the project's due to finish your work. You're actually assessing, doing bits of it along the way to assess where there may be challenges, which gives you really the time to correct issues, to manage your trial better. And frankly, you know, we, each, each one of these trials now, they're between what? Two million and you know three hundred million dollars we're investing in these a single trial at this point. Um, so it's egregious to me that we do not have the tool set to be able to even identify, pull in that data effectively on an ongoing basis to detect these signals, so we can plan effectively to do something about it. Anybody who's done a clinical trial knows that there's a lot of risk, right? So you know, can you talk about some of the types of risks you're trying to help? Sure. Drug, diminish, drug developers diminish for the most part? Yeah, so I think the way we start with it is always at the highest level, um, time, cost, and quality, right? So when we talk about time, um, it's really important to understand that you're going to be able to achieve, let's for example, I'll give you a few instances, target 
participant accrual, right? Obviously, for you to run a trial effectively, you need to have particular types of participants or patients if it's a if it's a sick population. You know, in the vaccine population, they weren't necessarily sick. So that's why I use participants as well as the term. But you need to make sure that the, you have paths to sign, randomizing, or screening and randomizing these patients for your trial in a given time period, right? And if that's, mm-hmm. if your enrollment is, is not on track for the countries and the sites you've decided to actually, um, to activate the study in, you could, your timeline for your study could be exceptionally extended, right? So that's, that's one type of, one example of a thing we look at to understand how's the timeline looking for the study. Another area on timeline, for example, and similarly is discontinuation. So you could, you could enroll patients fine, but if you have high volumes of discontinuation of participants in your study, then what ends up happening is you actually don't have as many valuable subjects in your study of sub- valuable participants. So you have to recruit or enroll more subjects, right? And so that ex- could extend the timeline as well. One aspect of the timeline uh, that really affects the overall market opportunity is oftentimes these therapies are only in, under patent for a certain amount of time. So the faster you can get them to market, the faster you can get recoup your return on investment, but also on the patient side, the faster we can get these therapies out to the market to address unmet clinical needs. That's right. just one flavor. Then we have subsequent types of flavor when we talk about data quality, making sure the data is actually um, collected in the way that you, you stated you wanted it to be collected in the, uh, in the plan, in the protocol at the outset of the study, as well as um, cost implications, right? So we look at cost implications as well, which is how, what will this, what will the extension of enrollment or uh, bad data quality data do to the overall budget that you had planned for this study? But then when you drill it down the level further, you can get into risk categories is something we look at quite a bit when we look at things like protocol adherence. When you're, when you're collecting this data, as I mentioned, it has to be done per a very prescriptive method that is specified a, a priori a, before starting the trial in a protocol. And if it's not collected in that manner, it can be discounted. So we are right. tracking the risk to protocol deviations and understanding trends and not only understanding trends within that study, but uh, we're looking at similar types of studies in this in this particular therapy area, you know, neurology or or say say psychiatry or, or gastrointestinal type studies and saying, what has been the protocol adherence in studies like yours? And therefore, can we glean some insights about how you are doing in your study based on your comparators in the study as well. But that's just a small flavor. I could I could probably wax on for quite some time on this question. <laughs> well, that that brings to the question, I mean, everything you just said, it brings to the question is like, from what I know, the company sort of predicts how clinical trials will go by comparing it against a proprietary data set of, I think I was reading 2000 past trials, right? Yep. So I guess the question comes, so you're comparing, you know, one to the past of, things that are similar, but, you know, for everybody who's listening, sort of, you know, where does that data come from? In one sense, is it truly proprietary? I mean, that's what I'm, you know, that's my set of questions at the moment. Sure. Um, so I worked for a while before coming to the life sciences R&D space and the life sciences commercial space. Um, and I think that uh, data sets are, there are proprietary data sets in that space, very much so. But there's a third-party market for that data a little bit more so than we find life sciences data. It's really hard to get access to R&D data. And as you can imagine, 
that makes a lot of sense, right? If you're a drug developer, a pharmaceutical developer um, that uh, successfully completed a trial, you never want to share that data thereafter. You spent billions of dollars investing in the study. Do you want, if, if there are potentially unknown issues that you haven't identified, would you want to put that at risk? If you are, similarly, if you are a therapeutics developer that didn't meet your endpoints, do you want that information to get out? Um, and maybe potentially things that, uh, issues that that you should have, should not overlooked, right? Um, getting out in the right. public, et cetera. There's just a lot of, there's business risk. There's also IP risk, right? Um, there's a number of different risks associated with getting that data out. So it's been not a very straightforward journey to aggregate data in life sciences R&D. <laughs> that being said, I think how we approached this was we've developed models that are both used for benchmarking, as I mentioned before, um, comparing against similar trials for particular performance, KPIs, so to speak, as well yep. as predictive model generation and machine learning models that require a fair amount of data to train on to actually deliver value, right? And in that model, we've talked to a lot of our uh, partners or let's say folks that leads that were before they were partners. And we, and we talk to them, we say like, we have a growing data asset. There's precedence for this, because we've done this with other partners. So number one, there's precedent. Number two, We've worked with them to leverage their data combined with our data, right? Their mm -hmm. enterprise data with our data, because it's a com it's it's not just one entity's data that's going to provide that value. Your performance, your processes, the way you run trials is inherent in your data. And if we don't leverage that data to train our models, to retrain some parts of our models against, we're not providing you the most value we could be with our predictive models or our benchmarking. So with that approach, we've been able to com do comparative analysis of our data set versus other people's data sets, and then anonymize their data upon having a partnership with them to grow our data asset in a very, um, uh, in a very risk tolerant manner, right? All the information yep. about CROs or sponsors or other entities, people running trials is removed from the data. And we only leverage that data for the purposes of analytics or generating a benchmark. So none of that data is ever shared. So through that process over the last, I'd say two years, maybe a little two years and change since we started, we've been able to continuously grow this asset and provide greater and greater value with our descriptive, diagnostic, predictive analytics, as well as our benchmarking. How much money, if you had to guess, just to give people like an idea, how much money do you think gets poured down the drain preventatively uh, every year and could save you could save all this money if you just ran smarter if you did smarter clinical trial management if if i had to frame it away oh um at least i would say we've done some back calculations on this and happy to digress into the details of them if warranted but at least somewhere between 20 to 30 percent of the trial cost right now um, and depending on the phase and depending on the therapeutic area again that could be anywhere uh, from 20 to 30 percent of 3 million to 300 million per study yeah i mean it's you know that's got to be i don't know how many billions that is i can't <laughs> i don't know exactly how much is being spent annually off the top it's of my head we believe we, we've done some back back to the envelope calculations to show that there it is in the billions for sure across the across the global pharmaceutical market 
we're looking just just the value proposition and the signal detection we're bringing to bear is somewhere around 18 to 20 billion in terms of market opportunity. I mean, how would you guys run or help a team run a clinical trial and practice? Can you sort of give me a a real world example, maybe de-identify, right? Where you help the client avoid or mitigate some kind of risk, whether it has to do with patient enrollment or site compliance or safety issues during a trial, any one of those will do. Sure. So um, I think one example that I can bring to bear is working with a large CRO. Um, And with this large CRO, they had a sizable data asset that was not harmonized, so to speak. It was still living in the transactional exports from the source data systems or uh, CSVs, et cetera, all around. So it was, they had a bunch of different hypotheses about where they were proficient, where they were deficient, but nothing validated. So we spent some time with them trying to understand what all their data assets looked like. And we started collecting these different representations of former trials and ongoing trials, and we collected them and we harmonized them. In fact, as I mentioned before, one of our, our major differentiators is this is creation of a single source of truth, um, and we take that upon ourselves to do It's not like a services play. It's part of our offering, right, our platform offering. And so what we did was we brought that data together, and we it was about I think four to 500 studies worth of data at that point. We harmonized it into what we call a low command canonical data format, which is a a single representation for multiple different domains of data, scientific data, operational data, enrollment data, et cetera, right? Um, And then we compared that against similar studies in our repository, our growing repository, and said, okay, we can tell you comparatively that you are deficient in these particular areas and you're very proficient in these areas. For example, in this case, um, they were very proficient in achieving first patient in on the timeline that they expected to achieve. Uh, actually, let me try to scratch that. They were, very, they were very proficient in actually accruing the subjects by last patient in in the timeline they were expected to, right? So they could hit their accrual when they wanted to. But when we looked deeper into the data and looked at across like uh, first patient in, the 50% enrollment mark for the study, and then last patient in for the study, we were able to identify that there was actually a slowdown and a major uh, overcorrect, overcorrection to make sh- to make up for that. So they were actually hitting what they needed to hit. But as we all probably know, at least in the clinical research space, and any or any budgeting process, being over your budgeting process is bad. Being under your budgeting process is bad, right? Um, so in this case, it's it's, it's exact again the same. They were burning resource and cash and resources to rapidly overcorrect for uh, for a, a milestone they were not hitting uh, reliably earlier in their studies. And so we realized in that accrual situation, we said, okay, what you need is, we, we've identified an area you're potentially deficient. What you need is an enrollment forecasting application that brings in the data real time from your study, right? And it also combines historical data from our repository and your historical data to seed some prior knowledge about the study. So, and it's automated, fully automated. So every day you can understand where you are in relation to where you need to be, right? And it's not a naive straight line kind of curve. It's basically, it's based on looking uh, at thousands of historical studies in this space and understanding what the curvature of the actual model should look like. So we generated that and we were able to actually in the proof of concept, and this is just one particular example of an application been able to generate from our clinical trial intelligence platform. We generated that and we were able to, on a uh, study, predict two years out 
within one month when they would actually really hit the accrual and was within one month accurate. Now, while that was valuable in terms of understanding at the end states, what really the value was of this closed loop model, so to speak, right, is that it is closed loop. It allows them in silica to say, what happens if I open some sites here? What happens if I close some sites here? What happens if I close this country here? How will that affect my plan before I put that into action in the real world, which oftentimes is very, very, well, first of all, it's very risky, but second of all, can, can yield a number of unknown consequences if you don't try it out before in silica. So I think the, the approach here was we were able to not only predict these things better um, and also predict the impact of change orders on the study that might actually affect the timeline of the study, but we were able to actually provide them a an application, an interface by which they could test out all their hypotheses um, in, a, in a virtualized manner before they implemented them. And we're growing like crazy with that with that partner right now since that point. Yeah, and I mean, it, I mean, it, you know, in some ways it sounds like, you know, I didn't get it done and I'm pulling all-nighters like at some point so that I can get it done, right? So there's a whole staffing model. Yep. And how do you bring this to the attention of everybody so that they don't drop the ball, right? Because there's a million other things that might be coming at them at that moment. That, that's exactly right. Actually, one thing I'll add to that, given you mentioned the staffing model around it, is that we were born within small biotech, right? And small biotech is very resource constrained in its ability to manage and oversee a study. It's, that's fairly well known. So our approach has always been um, what I'd like to call machine-assisted human intelligence. We have experts that are human experts that know the space, but they need to be augmented. They need to be able to look at more complex streams of information and have a machine pick out particular salient insights, salient information, and provide that to them so they can process it, uh, reducing the degrees of freedom for them to process it. So just... I mean, there are a lot of statistical tools out there now that that for managing risks in clinical trials. So how is the approach that you guys are taking, you know, either different or better or both? The one um, that it's a good question. One uh, way we've been able to address this question is that Statistical approaches generally require a certain amount of data points to be collected before you can warrant using statistical uh, parameters or assumptions, et cetera. Um, and so there's two things at play here on top of that. I just mentioned we're moving into more specialized and therapeutic areas, right? So patients per study, right, are smaller, right? And on top of that, when you're starting out a study, which is usually the riskiest points in the study, when you're early in the study to mid-stage in a study, you, you cross that with the fact that you have less patients and, and they're more niche studies, so it's hard to find those patients. For now, your, your early phase, your riskiest phase is going to, to be extended as compared to when you were developing against blockbuster indications. So for a long time in the study, you can't really reliably use statistical parameters to identify an outlier or identify something as aberrant in the study that you need to focus on. So the way we've done it, we've done it in a slightly different way. There's, there's two approaches. One is we've actually developed a pretty complex risk score system that's based on a set of very different metrics, right? Just think of it as like a, uh, an array of different KRI, KPIs, right? Mm -hmm. Those KPIs will affect risk differently depending on the type of study you're in. 
and they'll have different weights to those risks of time, cost, and quality, depending on the study you're in. So we look at the given study we're going to deploy, and we say, okay, what is what are the features that characterize the study? Let's look in our historical repository against those same features, full, similar, or what we call lookalike studies, and we'll understand right. how to set those weightings to say, protocol deviations at this point in the study are going to impact the overall quality and time that much more for this type of study. So we can basically, in, for lack of a better term, the, the, I guess the simplistic way of saying is we can augment the data that we have coming in from a study, which is small at the outset of the study, with lookalike data to increase the power, right? That's, that's another way to look at this. So we can actually, we have much better power in being able to detect these issues earlier on and reliably confer that to clinical operators and clinical developers who can do something about it. It would be nice if you had enough data at some point to almost run the whole trial in silico <laughs> in a sense, yep. but uh, I, I think we need a lot more more data to get there. So, but, you know, just for everybody that's listening, sort of as a philosophical point, right? The reason we put drugs through clinical trials in humans is we simply don't know whether they'll work or what the unexpected side effect they might have once you start them on a much larger population. So in that sense, it's expected, even normal for some drugs, maybe even a lot of drugs, to fail at some point in phase one, phase two, or phase three. And as an investor, you know you don't want it to fail in phase three. Yep. <laughs> you want it to fail early. But so is Locavant's goal to reduce the failures or simply help drug developers get to yes or no faster, safer, more cheaply? Yeah. So our approach has been initially get to yes or no, faster, safer, more cheaply, more efficiently, right? As part of that process and actually related to some of the work we have done in the last few months on uh, the monitoring scientific risk, right? You, you have to be careful about these the eff efficacy analyses because they can unblind the study, especially when you are, have single or double blind blinded studies. So you have to be careful about this point, but in, in some circumstances, we, we can actually leverage our analysis on blinded endpoint analysis and understand how particular endpoints are covariating or not covariating or trending to understand if there's any effect whatsoever that's being generated in the study. So it, this is early days for us, but to your to your point about the first use case, we are starting to think about that as an opportunity as well, because we found a way to effectively blind the, the information and still assess the information content to understand if, if there is a, any form of efficacy signal being produced. So the, I think that that is a really valuable way for us to approach the market in the near future. I think the other point here is that if you are cleaning the data, if you are identifying those data quality issues on a more um, real-time basis, you should be able to reduce the time to do an interim analysis, right? We should be able to, you, you mentioned fail fast, right? Failing fast requires you to also assess the data to understand if there's an efficacy signal, if there's a safety issue. And if we have these long cycle times for, uh, before we can actually do an interim analysis and much of the data indicates 
that those long cycle times are due to the not knowing where the issues are and finding those issues and cleansing them. If we can do that faster, we should be able to do interim analysis much more frequently, therefore right. being able to generate a fail fast scenario. Now you could almost, you should be able to set up the system to almost be running it and sort of move the bar on where it is on looks successful as moving down towards failure there's got to be some sort of almost real-time indicator as data is coming in to as you just don't want humans to jump the gun on that but you know the interesting thing is i was looking at one of the blogs you have and you you sort of say that one of the main reasons clinical trials are so costly and inefficient is bad data management and lack of interoperability across data repositories and you know, it's funny because anybody who listens to the show knows that just comes up over and oh, it doesn't matter who you are in healthcare. It is a recurrent uh, theme that uh, for some reason people are not willing to step up and solve. I mean, it has to be a, a party like yours that comes in and, and helps clean it up from the outside as opposed to it being cleaned from the inside the way that you would ideally like it to be. Let's pause the conversation for a minute to talk about one small but important thing you can do to help keep the podcast going, and that's leave a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open Apple Podcast app on your smartphone, search for The Harry Glorickian Show, and scroll down to the ratings and review section. Tap the stars to rate the show, and then tap the link that says write a review to leave your comments. It'll only take 30 seconds but you'll be doing a lot to help other listeners discover the show. And one more thing. If you like the interviews we do here on the show, I know you'll like my new book, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. It's a friendly and accessible tour of all the ways today's information technologies are helping us diagnose disease faster, treat them more precisely, and create personalized diet and exercise programs to prevent them in the first place. The book is now available in print and ebook formats. Just go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble and search for The Future You by Harry Glorickian. And now back to the show. You know, on this show, we talk about, you know, how does analytics play into this? So how did, I gotta start finding new words, but AI and ML, right? come into this picture? What types of, you know, tools in the AI toolbox is Locavant using? What what special powers, right, does your AI give you to extract predictions from your data set that other people don't? Yeah, I think, um, I think the first piece is, and it's going to sound interesting in relation to what folks usually talk about in terms of AI and ML, but it's a harmonized data model, right? Um, that this is when I was in when I was working as a data scientist a number of years back, you know, nobody told me all the work that you have to do with data governance and data harmonization. And then when you think about fast forward to today, where a lot of the actual models themselves are function calls, right? You realize that a lot of the work is actually making sure the data is ready to be analyzed for this particular use case, 
right? Mm-hmm. So it's not to say that we don't do a number of different, try different approaches to gradient-boosted descent or uh, support vector machines or, or neural nets, which is actually my background in terms of grad school and research. Um, but we spend a lot of time thinking through how we need to harmonize, create validated data pipelines to harmonize the data for use in this case. And even in that case, a lot of the work we do is kind of um, intelligent or artificially intelligent. So when we're harmonizing the data, we're looking for views on leveraging multivariate um, clustering algorithms to actually figure out which, which particular types of data attributes should be mapped to one particular field, right? So yeah. it's not to say that the data harmonization is devoid of intelligent approaches. It is full of intelligent approaches, but it is a absolute necessity to have the integrity of the data that you need to run those sophisticated front-end models, of which we run a ton of, but I just, I want to call attention to the fact that that is a core asset for Locavant. From the get-go, that Locavant canonical data model and the processes we use to harmonize data to get it into that state has been a core focus because that, if you can do that, and that is the same model you're providing to your data science and analytics teams, your product development teams, then you really have that flywheel that you can generate a number of different analyses. For example, I just mentioned that predictive enrollment forecast model that comes off of our our Locavent canonical data model. That that is something that is a predictive model leveraging historical data and ongoing study data in an automated model. It indexes towards the historical data early in a trial. It indexes towards prediction indexes towards ongoing study data as it comes in and we have more confidence that input over the trial. That's like an, an a emergent benefit almost of having the harmonized data harmonized model. So, you know, one has to ask in the age of the coronavirus, right? Um, how has the business of running clinical trials changed since the pandemic? I mean, and and how do you guys? Is that an advantage or a disadvantage? I'm trying to you know place where you guys are in the whole realm of how things have hopefully change for the better. Yeah, it's been a, it's been quite a, uh, a, it's been quite a tailwind for us actually. And I would say that number one, it's been, it's been beneficial to us because there's just been a lot more scrutiny and interest in clinical research. Not to say there wasn't before, especially for niche therapeutic areas, but, and, and the fact that we were able to develop and, and, uh, and get, novel COVID vaccines out pretty rapidly, but there was also a lot of challenges along the way in getting to that point. Um, and also delays in trials and challenges in therapeutics development to address COVID as well. So there's just been a lot of scrutiny in the last 24 to 30 months on how efficient and how fast and how effective clinical research can be, right? So just that alone has been beneficial. Now let's take the next step there and say that associated with the pandemic, there's been a great impact to clinical trials across the board, not just COVID trials or COVID therapeutic trials. Um, there have been, a f- so patients, participants couldn't get to sites for site data collection, right? Um, site staff couldn't get in there to, for data entry or site management or site oversight activities, right? So in general, there's it's been a huge boon to those technology groups that have developed decentralized or direct-to-patient data capture methodologies, thereby lowering the patient burden and the site burden for 
clinical trials to continue in a pandemic-fueled environment. What's interesting about that as well, when we think about ourselves as both a data-type agnostic platform for clinical research, as well as an analytics engine, a platform on top of that, Mm -hmm. we see this huge movement to another type of data, another DCT data, for example, decentralized trial data, as another data source, right? right? And what we've seen also is that while there's been a shift to a lot of decentralized trial collection, on most studies, at least 90% of studies and above, they're hybrid. They're not fully decentralized. So you have to have some site data collection and you have some decentralized data collection. And that makes sense for those things that may make the most sense to lower patient and site burden to administer. Let the patient, let the participant be at home. For those that require like biopsies, et cetera, require a participant oftentimes to come into the site, let that be at the site. The challenge there is now you have these two different complex data streams that are not necessarily harmonized and aggregated. So this is, again, I think been an area where we've been able to come in and say, we'll just, as, as a matter of course of doing business, this is another data set to us. We need to bring these two in and we have to also enable comparative analysis against decentralized and traditional site-based data collection because otherwise you're going to miss insights. You're going to miss information that you are going to be critical to your study. Yep. A part of me was just thinking, uh, you know, you guys should buy somebody like Unlearn AI and go at it together where you can have, uh, you know, um, virtualized patients that you can uh, put into the trial, but that's that we we won't go there. Um, <laughs> so, um, so let's step back for though for a second. So let's talk about the company's origin story. Like Locavan is one of many companies launched by Roy Vant, as you mentioned earlier. A lot of the companies end up with the word Vant. Um, so yep. can you explain so that people understand what is Roy Vant, how it operates, what are Vants, and and why was Locavant born, and how did you become president and CEO? Sure. So Roy Vant started about seven years ago, and I should mention Roy Vant is our parent company. We were founded out of Roy Vant and spun out as a technology company in of itself. Um, so Roy Vant initially started as a company that launched Vance, what nimble entrepreneurial biotech companies and now health tech companies as well. When I joined Roy Vant three and a half years ago, Roy Vant had about 15 different biotech uh, companies. And what was really interesting about their approach is it was therapy area agnostic. So it was not that there was a uh, strategic focus around oncology or strategic focus around immunology. There was a focus around identifying um, compounds that may have been deprioritized in larger pharma companies, mid-sized pharma companies that had a lot of potential and had could address critically unmet clinical needs. And so Royment would in-license those therapies and start a then therapy, therapeutically oriented band. So at the time, you know, Axavant, it was the neuro, neurological oriented band, neurological disease oriented band. Myavant was the human reproductive oriented disease oriented band, et cetera. And so now when you think about somebody like myself who comes from the tech world and life sciences, healthcare technology world, brought into, Lo- brought into Roy Van three and a half years ago, the premise behind Roy Van at the time was we can more efficiently develop these therapeutics and have more favorable outcomes, leveraging innovative ways of um, addressing human talent as well as technology mm-hmm. data. And that, that latter piece is where obviously I came in. 
And we were starting to look at in my team, what are some of the most significant challenges and frequent challenges amongst Vivants themselves, right, in running these there in these, these clinical trials? And then does that map against some of the more significant frequent challenges we see outside of the market? And not surprisingly, there were quite a few particular areas of residence. Right uh, at the point at that point in time, there were about 54, uh, 45 programs being run by Roymath, and so it was a and across a variety of therapeutic areas. And I guess the the thing that hit us in the face primarily was you know you, I guess the best way I could say it is you can order a pizza, right? You can understand what is it, a twenty five dollar investment, twenty dollar investment? Maybe it's gone up since then since I ordered a pizza. But the point is that you can understand what what time it was ordered, when it was you know when they said they were going to deliver it to you and you can track it in most of these apps now along its destination to a chain of custody okay. to get to you. We, were, we could spend three to 50 million on any given trial and we were struggling with our partners to actually identify what is the current state of enrollment in the last week? What is the current state of discontinuation? Where are we at with our... Um, uh, with these particular sites in this region, why are we seeing high screen failure rates, et cetera, right? right? That's egregious to me. Um, that just, that should not be the case. We were fairly frustrated with that. And then even when we when even at Royvans uh, or even in my former experiences at Novartis or other pharma, um, when we brought in a source system to say, okay, well, we're gonna have a representation of the data right. ourselves, right? So that we can understand what's going on. Invariably what had happened is, you would have one source system here and then a duplicate version of that source system at the CRO or another vendor that's working with you. And you spent your entire time trying to figure out which was the source of truth because they're just spending all your time doing data reconciliation saying, is that really accurate? Is that really the signal? So that didn't work either. So we, we felt pretty frustrated about this. We initially tried not to build it ourselves. We worked with a few different collaborators outside of Royvan and tech vendors, et cetera. And we were fairly frustrated with the, the, what, what we came back with there. So um, at that point, we started thinking, if we can't buy it, we need to take a lead user innovation approach to address this. So um, we started off with the data platform, as I mentioned with you, and um, we built that capability to in, connect ingest and map from any source, uh, deliver that within a canonical data model, one single canonical data model. And then initially we did a bunch of bespoke analysis on top of that for a few different biotech bands. That went really well. Some of the external collaborators to Loka, to Royvan at that point reached out and said, we'd like to work with this technology outside of the Royvan family. And we realized we were onto something and we externally launched the company in January of 2020, which was a very interesting time in a year to launch a, a company. Um, that being said, we spent the first, I'd say just under two years, really focused on externally subsidized R&D phase. We were pretty fortunate to have some partners that invested in us in that phase. And we focused on first one particular application in risk monitoring. We talked a lot about risk. But then we also realized that the needs across different companies, different vendors, et cetera, for managing clinical trials are very varied. So we realized what we needed to really build is generalize on that first application we built and create a highly configurable analytics platform on top of this data platform so that we could actually analyze many different things and configure it for use for any particular customer. And so now we built across, I'd say seven or six or seven different use cases now, and we've de deployed most of them. And we're continuing to aggregate information in a true product sense, where the biggest pain points in the market um, and 
how do we build or configure a version of the platform and instance of the platform to address that. And at the same time, we're delivering on global trials with a number of uh, pharma studies, as well as on the side of the vendors, working through them to deploy on studies as well. So in a perfect world, right, you had access to all the relevant mm -hmm. data. Every drug developer in the world was taking advantage of your services. Um, how would it change the business of clinical trials? Would it, what would the outcomes look like? Would it be like you get more drugs approved every year at a lower cost, fewer disaster failures? I mean, what changes for the industry and for patients? Yeah, I think the first piece is you would reduce, and these are this is a lofty yes. question, so I'm going to answer the lofty yes. response. Uh, I think the first the first thing to note is that, and we we touched on this earlier, is I think you'd see fewer bigger failures in late phase. You'd be able to identify earlier on, both in terms of the um, life cycle of a compound, right? So from phase one to phase three, or even phase four but especially within the study itself. You'd be able to identify that there would be an issue in the study earlier on and you could kill it early on. So that's like one, one as aspect that I think would be, that's important to note. The other thing I think you, you, you would identify is less operational issues. So I think one in six trials across the globe failed just because of operational issues. And when I mean operational issues, I mean the protocol and the plans at the outset of a study say you need to administer the study following these steps. And when those steps are not followed, there's compliance risk. And therefore, when there's enough compliance risk, you can throw out the data or you have to not submit the study. And so one in six is, it's, it's not, that, not that small. And so if we're tracking, if we're more rigorously tracking both what is happening and what could happen, right, based on the indication, leading indicators of risk across time, cost, and quality, we should basically never see, that's, a, that's what one of our major goals, never see a trial fail just because of an operational right. reason. Not to mention, it's how, how can you go to the patients with unmet clinical needs in a particular indication, in a particular like, disease, and say, oh, I'm sorry, while the drug probably was effective, we just couldn't get it out into the market this time, and you know, it's going to take us another trial, potentially, and a lot of times folks don't actually resurrect a failed <laughs> study a failed indicate a failed right. therapy but like so even if they resurrected it and said it was because of an operational issue oh you got to wait another six years right that that's just not acceptable so i think those are the two components that come come top of mind um and i think early in our in our tenure our mission was no trial should fail due to operational error so i guess what is what is the path to financial success for a company like Locavant? Is it to just keep growing, to go public, to get acquired by a, maybe by a big pharma? What, what's the path? It's a good question. Um, I think folks that, uh, that know exactly what their exit strategy are, are probably, um, lack of a better term, often diluted. Um, but, uh, but I will say that we've seen a lot of growth, uh, not only during, a lot, there's been a lot of interest in Locavent during the pandemic. I mentioned we were in this externally subsidized R&D phase. So we were 
actively trying not to do too much externally. We wanted to figure out how to set up the platform for success. Coming out of that phase in the last six months, we've seen an incredible amount of traction externally. Um, and so I think we are still in the path of doing it on a growth trajectory ourselves, yeah. right? What does that mean in terms of opportunities to collaborate both uh, commercially and par partner and strategically? Well, it means that, you know, we can only do as much as we can, even if we continue to grow. There's data out in the market and partners that have access to that data that we would love to collaborate with. If that means that we need to be more strategic in our approach to what Locavent uh, can do or how, how to structure Locavent, we'll do that just because we need to actually achieve our mission, which is to have no fail due to trial due to, fail due to operate, operational error, right? And so I think that requires more data, that requires um, more data science. We have a lean, very, very proficient, but very lean data science team. So I think there'll be opportunities for strategic collaboration, but it's all related to the mission of bringing this clinical trial intelligence platform to address operational and other risks in a study as effectively as possible. You know, one of the things that crosses my mind is, could you, could you also use this from an investing perspective to analyze a trial that's going through its paces against historical information and determine, give it a weighting of, you know, probability of success versus failure from an investment perspective that, uh, that seems attractive to me. Yeah. So that's a, it's an interesting point you bring up. There are folks now asking us in the market about, um, well, we've been informed firmly in trial execution stage. Folks are asking us to move into feasibility and effectively feasibility is that the planning of a study, tell me with this particular configuration of sites, countries, and for this indication, knowing the standard of care in different countries, knowing the approach uh, to uh, clinical care, not just clinical research, how, how successful would the study be, right? Um, and obviously the success of a study, when, when you think of a biotech, the success of a study is the success of the company. Uh, right. When you think, when you go up market, depending on the study, it can still have incredible impacts to the success of a company. So there is definitely an afferent towards um, the investing world and financial. Um, I think at first we'd probably take a, a progressive step towards that by moving into trial planning analytics in this manner and then validating our approach against uh, progress in space and seeing how we can continue to grow in that, in that vector. Well, Rohit, it was great having you on the show. I hope everybody enjoyed our discussion. Um, you know, lot, lot, got lots of problems to solve in this industry. So there's, there's, uh, there's no lack of opportunity from, uh, you know, businesses that need to get started and the data that needs to be optimized to help move the process forward. But, you know, luckily everybody I talk to on the show, that's the direction we're all moving. So hopefully we'll we'll get there faster because I'm not getting any younger. So so good drugs uh, are going to be needed at, at some point. So good to have you here. And, and you know, I can't wish you and the team at Locavent, uh, you know, more success. Thanks, Harry, for having me on the show. It was wonderful to be here. That's it for this week's episode. You can find a full transcript of this episode as well as the full archive of episodes of The Harry Glorikian Show and Moneyball Medicine at our website. Go to glorikian.com and click on the tab Podcasts. I'd also like to thank our listeners for boosting The Harry Glorikian Show into the top 3% of global podcasts. 
If you want to be sure to get every new episode of the show automatically, be sure to open Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player and hit follow or subscribe. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we always love to hear from listeners on Twitter, where you can find me at hglorikian. Thanks for listening, stay healthy, and be sure to tune in two weeks from now for our next interview.